You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Archaeo Animals, the show all about zoo archaeology. This is episode 61, Lactose Intolerance, Beware, the Zoo Archaeology of Dairy. And with you, it's me, Simona Falanga, and me, Alex Fitzpatrick. Well, so a bit of a different one this time, because of course, I mean, it is still related to animal exploitation, but not as much in of a bony subject. Not really. I mean, we will talk about bones because obviously, but it's a bit more of like, I mean, it's from animals, so you wouldn't say it's animal adjacent, but I guess it's like, I don't know. I don't know how to describe this one. Plus, it still like ties in with zoo archaeology because it does pertain sort of animal exploitation and is something that, as you'll find out, we can learn more by looking at the bones as well and not necessarily about whether you do or do not get milk residue. Extremely. What, a, what an exciting topic. Although, I think, I guess, with this, it's less traditional zoo archaeology and more kind of the last couple decades of innovations in how we do zoo archaeology. So you'll see it's very, it's very archaeological science heavy, which is great for me, someone with a master's degree in archaeological science who cannot remember a single thing I learned in that year of my master's degree. But I guess we'll, um, <laughs> we'll rewind it a notch or two. What do we mean by dairy, actually? Of course, when we mention dairy, milk is sort of the main sort of obvious product that comes to mind. But of course, it includes a variety of other sort of milk-based products. First and foremost, I guess, will be cheese, which is made by coagulating milk, usually through the aid of sort of an acidic substance. So citric acid is using is used in modern cheese making a lot, but uh, citrus juice also helps, lemon in particular. And this will allow the milk to coagulate and the curds will create, so these chunky bits, if you will. And by separating those from the whey, a.k.a. the liquidy bits, you get your cheese, which will have your, your fresh cheese as it is. Or you can let, leave it to mature for a little bit. And well, that's how you get your hard cheese. Yeah, basically. I mean, it's also, I think, the most important milk product but it's not just about the cheese as much as i'd love it to be we also have you know butter where it's basically just the remaining fat and protein resulting from churning milk or cream and this also invites me to do my first tangent which is simona when you were in school did you have to make butter no but i make it at home myself okay i did i had to make butter yeah. Okay. So it's not just because I had this conversation the other day because I was I wanted to know if this was a UK thing as well because in America I think it's very common for kids to have to make butter in class. <laughs> yeah, we had to make what some people call drop scones, but they're basically like these kind of like soda based, very hard biscuits, which is what Americans would call them, and we would have to make these soda scones, and then we'd have to churn the butter. Um, there's a place in Northern Ireland called. The Ulster Falcon Transport Museum, and it's like an open air museum, and a lot of their main displays in the wee houses are where people make these like soda scones, and there's always people churning butter. So definitely something I very close to my childhood. Yeah, no, we've never done anything like that because I guess that would be what would the subject be called, like home ed. Well, 
for us, it was a science experiment thing where they just gave us jars with cream in it. And then we just had to shake it really, really hard for like 10 minutes. And then it would be, it would be butter. That sounds painstaking. I, I don't, I mean, I, a lot of children were left behind in the U.S. educational system myself included so yeah anyway <laughs> it's not um, just about butter either because there's also yogurt or what people in this country call yogurt which is wild and weird but whatever it's we'll we'll skip over that because it's yeah i could go an hour on that yeah, uh, i guess we're, we're broadly defined <laughs> as products made from fermenting milk of course in the particular case of yogurt is through uh, thermophilic bacteria it's, it's and yogurt. Ferment it that way it's yogurt thermophilic meaning it likes heat just in case people don't i've never heard of thermophilic before but i could work it out i could want that on the t-shirt i am absolutely thermophilic but yeah but that uh that's not just yogurt because there's a variety of other sort of fermented milk based products and drinks kefir comes to Mm -hmm. mind as well and of course you have cream just the well the fat layer skimmed off the top of the milk Generally, if you get a lot of the sort of organic whole milk, especially like, I guess, in in Britain, sort of from like, if you get them from a milkman, they will be like a thick, good inch of cream at the top that you kind of have to sort of pry out with a spoon before you can actually use the milk. And and fun fact, I'm violently lactose intolerant, so I might die during this conversation. Something I kind of knew. Basically, a lot of, you know, East Asian populations are lactose intolerant. And I found this out the hard way when I decided to eat, I believe, all the cheese from a very fancy cheese and wine place the day before I moved to the UK and was so violently ill, I was almost taken to the hospital. Cheese, never again. Just kidding. I love cheese. It sounds like it was worth it, though. Oh, it was absolutely worth it. I was happy to miss going to the UK for some really good cheese. <laughs> Must have been. I mean, could you imagine that as an excuse, like phoning up the airport? Yeah, I had too much cheese. I'm really sorry. And the airline's like, yeah, I understand it. We'll just move your flight. It's understandable. Yeah, but it was pretty incredible. It's one of those things where you're kind of just like, yeah, I, do- I don't feel great when I eat cheese. And I never really liked milk. And then... Oh boy, no! Actually, my my body violently rejects cheese and all other dairy products. But whatever, it's fine. And to be fair, it's actually very important to talk about that because it ties into kind of how we understand dairying and milk consumption over time. So, like basically everything we've ever talked about on this podcast, when it comes to origin stories, you know, we're not really sure still. It's a big question. There's a lot of research that has to be done to kind of understand it. So just the act of consuming milk from another species is considered to be an adaptation that's really unique to our species of Homo sapiens. And it's actually seen as a a major event in the evolution of human diets. And it makes sense to kind of adapt to consuming milk from other species because animal milk is quite rich in proteins and nutrients and it's very useful when resources might be scarce. So the actual origins of, you know, dairying and milk consumption in general is kind of a mystery, although there's lots of research being done to investigate this. So, you know, like what we've seen with domestication, which we've discussed in, I don't know, a dozen episodes at this point. It's a lot. More than one. Definitely more than one. 
you know, it, it may have occurred at different times in different areas. It may have kind of com- come and gone with time, but more or less, it probably came around the Neolithic and the rise of agriculture and domestication, which, you know, makes sense. And now if you've got your bingo cards at hand, we have, ne- well, we have a double one. We have Neolithic or likely occurred in different <laughs> locations across different time periods. We could probably just make a bingo card based on the domestication episode framework because we basically do the same episode over and over again. Yeah, it's just something that occurred across, I guess, different time periods and likely across different geographical areas, but broadly in the Neolithic and the Near East, among other regions. So yeah, I mean, yeah, like Simona said, earliest origins may be in the Near East, Western Asia, following early domestication about 10,500 years ago, give or take. But in other places, we see different stories, but still not necessarily that far away from that time period. So in East Africa, for example, milk consumption may have occurred as early as when herding became a really common practice among pastoralists around 6000 BC. And in Britain, I believe the earliest date for processing milk fats is around 4000 BC. Of course, there's also some debate as to how much dairy was actually contributing to the average Neolithic diet as well. It could have been very low amounts. It could have been a lot. We're still not entirely sure. But this leads to the secondary products revolution, which I can't remember if we talked about. I feel like we probably did. Not entirely sure we did, you know? Because it's kind of a a big thing in Zuark. At least it's like a big theory. So probably we're kind of talking about the theory itself. So in 1981, Andrew Sherritt proposed this model called the secondary products revolution, where you have your early domesticated species, which are basically your sheep, your goat, your cattle, were mainly domesticated for primary products. So their meats, their skins and hides and their bones, but eventually become more intensively exploited for their secondary products. So physical labor, so being a beast of burden, doing traction and plowing, their wool and milk, obviously. So this happens later on, much later after domestication first happens, and it spreads uh, across from Western Asia and Northern Africa. So secondary products had a massive impact on agriculture. It meant that animals didn't have to just be outright slaughtered for their products. We could use them to do labor, to intensify and spread agricultural work, and ultimately reduce the difficulty of farming for humans. And it's overall kind of accepted by most archaeologists, but there's still kind of bits of critique here and there as to its use as like a broad model, uh, especially as there are still still some evidence of secondary products that kind of predate where the secondary products revolution may have occurred. So it may or may not be as cut and dry as this, although it, it does make sense for the most part. I guess sort of over time, moving from the secondary products revolution. I mean, I guess, again, it's one of those things that is widely dependent on the region, but you do tend to see sort of a fluctuation between what were sort of the most common secondary products that were produced for livestock, leading all the way up to, well, you know, sort of into the Iron Age and the Roman period and into the early medieval period where farms tended to be sort of fairly small and self-sufficient for the most part 
at least in Britain, where the sort of the general sort of the your usual suspects of domesticates will be kept. But of course, over time, as we go sort of later into the medieval period and the post-medieval period, growing urbanization meant more reliance on farms to support these new populations, especially with the establishment, again, of sort of larger towns and cities in the medieval period, resulting then in more centralized and efficient productions of dairy and meat from cows in this specific example. This was also influenced by the increased use of horses on farms for plowing and traction, leaving them sort of freeing up cattle to be used elsewhere. And milk, so and the production thereof in particular, became more important for cattle sort of after around sort of the mid-7th century, which can be seen in the zoarchaeological record as well as based on mortality profile. And now we've discussed mortality profiles a few times before, definitely in a bunch of episodes. Say so you, you got your assemblage of animal bones, and you look sort of out of the ageable, so the ageable mandibles, the ageable elements. And so you draw up sort of what your ages are sort of uh, for that assemblage. And from that, you can establish a mortality profile. So say in the case of dairy, you'll find a lot of the offspring or cattle being slaughtered quite early on. So then the milk could be kept and actually used as a secondary product. Yeah. So yeah, by the the mid 11th century, the dairy industry had grown a lot, Uh, although beef production had also eventually kind of increased in importance as well. So by the time you get to like the mid to late medieval period, you have a, a very mixed product focus. So you have both dairy and beef being produced at pretty uh, high frequencies. And you can even see the importance of cattle overall reflected in historical texts around this time, especially when it comes to cattle theft, which was considered a very serious crime starting with the ninth century. Now, Lots of things happen, but we're going to skip right to kind of the industrial age because that's probably where some of the most important innovations in how we use dairy and how we produce kind of dairy products happened. So dairy, amongst other livestock products, became massively important as Western European exports to Britain as it became more industrialized. Britain was actually referred to as a bottomless pit that can never be filled by Dutch cattle authorities. Now, it also it provided this in the Dutch, but I'm not going to embarrass myself as someone whose Dutch is extremely poor. So I'm just going to leave you with that, which is a wild thing to say. And have in historical texts, um, but yeah. Also, what, what does a Dutch cattle authority do? They just, they just oversee cattle. Yeah, I mean, there were like books that were cited and stuff in the the, the paper I was reading about this. So there's a plethora of texts on on this. So if for Dutch cattle enthusiasts, go for it. You know, but I mean. <laughs> It being referred to as a bottomless pit was actually quite accurate. So exports of cheese from just the Netherlands to Britain increased by 130% in the 1800s, with cattle and sheep exports being increased by over 3,000% around that time. So big deal, dairy. And, you know, alongside all this, we start seeing kind of the mechanization of dairying, By the 1950s, you start seeing the introduction of new milking machines, although milk machines were around since about World War I, 
But now we're seeing them even more mechanized, especially with milk tanks, all these kind of technological advances happening to further centralize and further make production very efficient. And from the 1950s onward, dairy becomes part of the national character of America and advertised heavily to the masses, which was highly problematic given what it was being implicitly associated with, like purity and all those other extremely problematic things to talk about in the 1950s and something I think we've actually talked about when we talked about Antarctica Yes, I was going to say, like, it would be like, not about a uh, episode about sort of the American continent, no, Antarctica. But it was a part of the American push towards dairy being a big thing. So obviously that was bad. But in the late 90s and early 2000s, it gave us the Got Milk campaign. So who can say if it was bad overall? Which I think in that episode I described to you both because it is an extremely American thing. I mean, if you ever wanted to see Mario with like a milk mustache look up the got milk campaign if you're not from the united states it's my entire childhood i think i've seen a few of them but like it's on a, in magazines i used to learn english from so like there was these uh like learn english magazines i think they were printed specifically for like non-english speakers to learn well either like british or american english depending on the ones you bought and I think I've seen some of those in there that makes sense it was a big like push in educational like magazines and in schools they were everywhere like it was absolutely everywhere which was extremely alienating for someone who not only didn't like milk but was from a particularly lactose intolerant population (laughs) so that was fun but it is kind of a cool campaign so i think while we take a break everyone else can go look up the campaign it's fun if you're if you're not from america it's very interesting and interesting insight into the american psyche waiting on a tax return hopefully it ends up in your hands Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. And we are back with Archaeo Animals, episode 61. We are talking about the zooarchaeology of dairy. And now we're actually going to talk about the zooarchaeology of dairy because we kind of just spent the first part talking about like the whole history and what dairy was, all that kind of nonsense. But now we'll actually get to how do we find dairy zooarchaeologically and archaeologically. Like we said in the beginning, it's not really going to be a bone heavy episode. 
Although we can kind of use bones. So let's get to that part first. Basically, you know, if you find cattle remains, there's probably a good chance milk was being consumed on this site. I mean, it's probably the most common, most important source of evidence for dairying, although sometimes circumstantial. I mean, if you look at kind of domestic sites across Europe during the late Neolithic to the early Bronze Age, you do see the number of cattle bones increase overall as far as numbers. However, of course, the presence of cattle doesn't entirely mean dairying because obviously cows are used for a variety of other products too. Which takes us back to our mortality profiles, (laughs) which I have uh, very, very heavily hinted at in the last segment. Of course, yes, if you draw a mortality profile through identifying the age at death sort of of your assemblage, you might be able to get a better idea of what sort of primary and secondary products were being produced on that site. So a daring herd, as again, a very heavily hinted at in a previous segment, will have a very specific looking profile in as much you'll see the early culling of young individuals and the retention of the older ones. Because, of course, you know, if all the milk that the cow is producing is going to the offspring, then, well, there's no milk for you. Yeah. And this kind of mortality profile isn't just for cattle. It goes for basically any of the kind of animals that produce milk that humans utilize. Like I said, a way you could look also to an extent as sexing, if you can do sexing in your assemblage, because it can be tricky with the small fragments you get sometimes, because of course Mm -hmm. you'll see sort of a fairly substantial population of females with only sort of the odd male here and there. As opposed, you know, if you're using them for, stra- for traction, steers, like castrated males, were quite often implemented for traction. So you might see a higher population of steers instead, which, how do I tell the difference between a steer and a bull? It's male, but it's longer. It's a long boy. Tend to be lankier. And believe me, archaeologists love when you write that on your site reports. Long boy. Long boy. LV, long boy. <laughs> So what, like a long boy for that? No, okay. Sheep and goat remains. <laughs> yes, sheep slash goat remains. Yes. I was thinking of a joke and then got lost halfway through. So <laughs> we'll move on to your sheep, sheep slash goat remains, because as we've uh, again hinted at in a plethora of episodes, it is sometimes quite tricky to tell the difference between sheep and goat as in like most of their appendicular skeleton, looks basically identical. So there's some very, very sort of few sort of visual cues, but most of it is down to biometry, which don't go there. No. So we'll a sheep goat. Yes. Ovi Capri, the zooarchaeologist's friend. Yeah, the Ovi Capra from like Ovisarius, which is the scientific name for the sheep, and Capra Hircus, just the one for goat. So yeah, Ovi Capri. A good old friend. But sheep and goat and goats, much like cattle, also particularly important for people, especially in arid environments, as both species are actually well suited for post-climatic stress recovery, even though sheep have more of a pension to just die compared to goats. Especially goats will even reproduce much faster following events such as drought. Goats just being overall hardier and just happier, even in more like steep terrain and more like sparse vegetation compared to sheep. As an example, East African pastoralists likely used both sheep and goat quite often for milk. 
as they obviously lived in very arid environments, and that would be kind of the best way forward. And goats in particular are interesting to think about with dairying because goats may or may not have been one of the earlier species to be domesticated. Again, very much up in the air, whether or not that's true, but it could possibly mean that if there was a lot of early milking going on, they may have been kind of one of the earlier ones. Who knows? And I guess it'd also be a way to ease yourself into it because isn't goat milk either like does it have less lactose or is it just generally just more digestible for people that are generally very unhappy with dairy yeah i think it might be which also kind of leads towards maybe that being i mean to be fair we already can't tell like when the earliest milking was happening let alone species but i think you could probably put some money on goats maybe being one of the earlier ones over yes. cattle. Although cattle, like, obviously, yeah. Maybe you try like cow's milk, be like, oh, no, no, that's like, no, that's that, that's too much. I'm going to work my way up. We'll start with goat. <laughs> Just ease myself into this whole dairy thing. Someone's telling me it's good for me. This is beginner milk. We'll start with the beginner milk with goats and we'll move to more advanced milk, which is cattle. Um, yes, another thing, so trace left on the bones that may indicate milking. And that is something that is new to me, actually, is looking at metapodial thickness of sheep and goat. So like the cortical layer of the bone, so the outer layer of the metapodials, appear to thin due to large scale milking activities. And it also occurs with increased frequencies of older female individuals in assemblages. Yeah, I'm not. I'm actually not 100% sure on the metapodial thickness. I think it's been used before, but not potentially something that's like a major signifier. I think it's kind of correlated with other evidence to suggest milking with goats and sheep. Yeah, because also I would guess like also like thinning of bones isn't something that would generally happen to older individuals anyway. Yeah, I, uh, I think that might actually be the, the bigger signifier, but... That was kind of what some research was doing, looking at. So I guess it was one characteristic out of a few to kind of identify populations that may have been used for milking. Well, as for everything, if you've got your bingo cards, it's another piece of the puzzle. So by itself, it doesn't necessarily prove your theory. But when you put all the pieces of the puzzle together, you recreated this wonderful picture that is archaeology. This was archaeoanimals. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of the theme of this episode is, you know, you can use all of these things individually as evidence, but it's not really strong evidence for dairying. But if you put some of them together, you get a pretty good case. And of course, what makes it more complicated is that it's not just about cattle or sheep or goats. Depending on where you are, it could be other animals such as yak, donkeys, buffalo. Again, I think we've talked about some of these animals before in previous episodes, but just to be real quick, you know, it's very culturally and environmentally dependent. You know, may many mammals produce milk and humans are incredibly resourceful species for better or worse. So, for example, yak were particularly important as their milk is really high in fat, and it's obviously really useful then for the kind of freezing environments that they and their human companions live in. And interestingly, it could also be used to make candles and lamps. Uh, <laughs> and again, I, I wonder whether yak milk is also more digestible than cow's milk in a way, just because like the 
purely non-scientific thought here, but I've seen, especially in recent years, there's been sort of a spike in sale of yak chews for dogs, which of course are obviously lactose intolerant because, Mm. you know, you tolerate lactose as long as you're sort of feeding from your mother and then they are weaned and then they don't have dairy anymore, (laughs) as it happens to every other species but us. Yeah. <laughs> We've just powered through the struggle. We'll be like, no, I don't care if it makes me ill. I'm going to have it anyway. Yeah, and we will actually talk about that more scientifically in a second. Is it really bad that I give Bruno a yak chew? Is that bad? He seems to really like them. I wouldn't have thought so. Yeah, but like if he's lactose intolerant. Yeah, but like it's, I guess it's better digestible. Uh, I, yeah, he used to really like yogurt. Natural yogurt tends to be okay. Oh, okay. Thank but again, you. I think because fermented, the, the fermentation process, I think, does decrease the lactose in the product. Ah, uh, okay. So and also, so, like the more the more a cheese is matured, the less lactose it'll have. So, like, think Parmesan, yeah. especially if you get sort of the turbo, like you know, thirty month aged, it'll have considerably less lactose than say ricotta. Oh, okay, right. Gotcha, gotcha. No worries. So Bruno can my dog Bruno can have like old cheese but can't have new cheese gotcha thank you for putting my mind at rest just Mona. in moderation <laughs> moderation what's yes. moderation when it comes to cheese in moderation like disclaimer i am not a dog nutritionist <laughs> very important disclaimer well, I am a zooarchaeologist, and I can say that when we do talk about dairying, we're not just talking about individual species. People will use multiple species, probably at the same time. So, for example, British Neolithic dental calculus, which we'll talk about in a second, suggests that sheep and goats and cows were all used at the same time for milk. And obviously, that's the same case kind of in the modern day. We have various types of milk, including non dairy ones thank goodness do you think they tried to mix it all at the same time like a turbo glass of milk simona simona we will talk about that later on in this episode (laughs) don't worry also because like british neolithic what is a glass i don't know (laughs) but anyway but yes as uh alex has hinted at we can get an idea of dairy consumption also by looking at human remains and specifically at the evidence or the traces that dairy consumption leaves on the human body. The adaptation to dairy may have even driven an intensive selection for the gene adaptation of lactase persistence, so LP, which allows for lactose digestion by adults. But uh, Alex was sadly not chosen for this adaptation. I'm not LP. I'm sadly I'm not. To be fair, it's also something that's kind of relatively new as far as the research, and it's still being debated as there's now evidence for low LP being found in Neolithic populations that also have other evidence of dairying. So it could be that milk consumption back then was very low. It may have been processed in a way to remove lactose, like fermentation or created into different cheeses. Or dairy may have been used in a non-consumptive way, which we will also discuss later on. Or all of those things. Who knows? Yeah, so research looking into the African origins of dairying used dairy proteins found in the dental calculus of human teeth for the uninitiated calculus is mineralized plaque. They've used that data to identify regions that uh, adapted early to consuming dairy. 
the proteins can even be sort of narrowed down to, I guess, the family. So for cows, would be bovine, ovis, for sheep at capra, for um, goat. I keep forgetting the word for goat. It's it's a day. Um, however, there's still some issues with species identification via calculus. For example, yak. Our good old friend the yak is particularly difficult to identify due to only differing from other bovine species by one single triptych peptide. So Yeah, God I don't glad I don't do that anymore. That seems annoying. <laughs> but I guess we yeah, have we looked at mortality profiles, we've looked at the dead animals, we've looked at the human remains. But there's also another way where you could sort of find evidence of dairy consumption or production, which is dairy-related artefacts, which is like most commonly will be in the form of a container used for holding dairy products. So normally these are made out of ceramic. There are sort of certain ceramic typologies which were created for use in dairying, most likely. So for example, in prehistoric Finland, corded ware pottery likely aligns with substance practices and dairy consumption becoming normalised. You also get your good old cheese pots, which is what they're known as. It's perforated ceramic vessels used to strain cheese. So we have like the oldest example is from about 7,000 years ago in Poland. But you also find those throughout, make sure you've got your bingo cards ready, Roman Britain. <laughs> Lots of cheese, cheese pots, which I love to personally call colanders because they also look like a colander. Yeah, 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 you're right. But then which came first, the cheese strainer or the colander? Probably the cheese strainer. Yeah. So, so along with that, you get regu your regular bowls, which are associated with these strainers to kind of hold the way that get separated. However, these kind of strainers or colanders can be tricky to identify as may have also been used as sieves for other products like honey being uh, separated from beeswax. And we also actually find artistic representations of dairying and milking as well. So in ancient Mesopotamia, we see various wall art that shows milking and even dairy herds depicted on cylinder seals, including depictions of little milk vessels as well, which is really cool. I'm going to go on a very slight tangent because you mentioned bowls that were associated with the strainers, which will be used to sort of capture the whey. You would do that because the whey is good to keep because you can use it again and again and again. Because once you have your whey from cheese making, you can actually reuse that as the acidic substance to make more cheese. Oh, I didn't know that. But I'm not as crafty and handy as you are. <laughs> and also, again, on a slight cheese tangent, like everyone's probably familiar with the cheese ricotta, which is actually named that way because it literally means cooked twice. Because then you have your cheese making, you get your curds, you make your cheese out of it. Now, if you get the whey and you heat it again, some more curds will form. That's your ricotta. Just mm. literally cooked again. Now, probably the most important piece of daring evidence, particularly in the last decade, couple decades, I guess, is lipid analysis. And probably that's how most research today is basing their analysis of kind of daring in the past. So 
residue from ceramics can be analyzed for lipids, which are molecules that are insoluble in water and includes fats, oils, and waxes. And then these can actually be further analyzed to distinguish fat origins, including dairy fats. Now, of course, this becomes a bit complicated depending on cultural norms. So, for example, early African pastoralists actually used gourds rather than ceramics to store milk. So you wouldn't really be able to use a little bit of analysis on that. And it's just extremely common way to kind of identify ceramics that were used for milk and for cheese making. Because like we said, you know, from just looking at it with your eye, it may be difficult to differentiate ceramics based on what they were used for. But with lipid analysis, we can get a better idea of what was actually inside those ceramics. But at the end of the day, and as Simona said, ultimately, the best case scenario for looking at dairy in the past is a kind of a combination of all these different evidences to produce a strong case for having dairy in the site you're looking at. And while we put together this puzzle, we will take a break. And we are back with Archaeo Animals, episode 61. We are talking about the zooarchaeology of dairy and it's time for, well, it's time for case studies, but it's more importantly time for bog butter. Case study better be real exciting. You hyped it up too much. I mean, it's bog butter. Everyone knows bog butter. Even like my non-archaeologist friends know about bog butter because one, it's so interesting. And two, it's really funny. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I mean, we're specifically talking about Irish bog butter, but it is weirdly... (laughs) And I had no idea about this. It is weirdly a really common occurrence in bogs found across Ireland and Scotland. To slightly kind of move back a bit, because I actually don't know if we really talked about bogs on this show. I think we may have glanced on the subject of bogs. Because it's not really a zoo arc thing, is it? It's more of a... No, you tend to associate it with sort of with human remains and sort of bog bodies and such. Yeah. So bogs are, especially for people who may be in areas where bogs aren't really a thing, they are ultimately extremely handy environments for archaeologists due to their very unique physical and chemical composition, which aids in preservation. And that's how you get bog bodies, which are probably the most well-known besides the butter kind of product of bogs it just it preserves organic materials so well that you know we have some incredible human remains from you know the later prehistoric that are still quite well preserved because of the bogs but But also my first question is how much do you think bog butter stinks i mean yeah probably bad because waterlogged deposits sting yes as as someone who has dealt with what i've talked on this podcast before because someone made some fantastic fan art of it cheesy bone which is just (laughs) forgot about cheesy bone i know we must we are returning to cheesy bone which makes sense because we are talking about dairy which has nothing to do with dairy it's just waterlogged bone that we just always referred to as cheesy bone on site because it just it just crumbles when you touch it, cause it's so waterlogged, it's horrific. Oh, so many things sort of like the anaerobic conditions will sort of like make it sort of very, very not stable necessarily, but 
Oh, yeah, no, this was, well, the side I worked on was weird. It was caves. Caves, oh, and, caves and water aren't as good of a, unfortunately, we did not, <laughs> I did not work in a bog, which would have been cool. Instead, I had to face my fear of claustrophobia and sit in a cave. I think what I find, like, in my experience with waterlogged bones, that it goes black. Well, yeah. But not, uh, not, no. not, not charred black. Just, yeah. Uncharred, but still black. I mean, in general, though, bone smells like if anyone's ever had to drill into bone. And to be honest, if you've gone to the dentist and had to get work done, you know what bone smells like. And it's disgusting. And, just, and, and so are waterlogged deposits. Just a good handy tip. How do I tell if this is waterlogged? Does it stink? Probably. Is it what? Also, probably. I mean, yes, but it could also be water lane, which doesn't True. necessarily make it waterlogged. But semantics, bog butter. Bog butter. So yeah, weirdly common occurrence. I, in my, my tiny little brain, I was like, bog butter has been found like once or twice, right? No, there has been at least 500 bog butters found in Ireland alone. That is 500 bog butters you could eat, folks. You could have a delicious meal. Right, please, please. Uh, as, a, as a disclaimer here, please don't eat the bog butter. We do not know what the effects are, okay? We, 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 we cannot guarantee it's safe, okay? Now, as somebody who's the representative of the country of bog butter, obviously very, very important, but yeah, it, it has to be treated with respect. You must respect the butter. You want to eat the butter? What are you talking about? I do want to eat the butter really badly. But like respectfully. But now you're talking about the cheesy bones. And I'm like, right, why do we have cheesy bones and bog butter? And like, what's the bread? You know what I mean? You're making a sandwich in my mind. Well, that's that's the thing when I was saying that I feel like bog butter has become kind of like a meme outside of archaeology because I've seen people talk about wanting to take like the bread that's been preserved in like Pompeii and slather mm. it with the bog butter. Yeah. But maybe you got a, a meal going there. Isn't that just the thing with people in general that they just want to eat everything? Cause I've heard that with like sort of preserved mammoth meat in the tundra and people wanted to eat that. Pretty sure I read an article, I think that someone wanted to like drink, I think it's like some, sarcophagi that were covered oh, in Egypt yes. and someone wanted to have the, the, the sort of the liquid that was oozing out like you know like you just name something there's someone out there that wants to eat it yeah and that's why the human species is a fan like a fascinating species and it's a miracle every day that we have not made ourselves extinct <laughs> anyway bog butter so the earliest bog butter is from the early Bronze Age. So that's like your oldest vintage butter that you could eat if, say, you'd like to eat the bog butter. And it's actually found in a variety of contexts. So you have different types of bog butter to select in your meal. Uh, sometimes it's found in baskets or other kind of wooden containers. Sometimes it's wrapped in bark or even animal tissue. Or sometimes it's just what I refer to as nude like, someone just popped the butter down into the bog. <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll delve more into it further, but I'm just picturing just someone at some point in 3000 BC just keep like losing their butters into the bog. And you're like, oh no. I can't hold all these butters. <laughs> it's just like spilling over. Oh, please, oh, can someone make one. fan art? <laughs> it's like. I was like, suddenly it's like, oh, another one. <laughs> I mean, okay. I mean, but honestly, from an archaeological point of view, like, 
either people keep accidentally <laughs> dropping the butter because they keep squeezing it <laughs> outside of or or they're putting it there on purpose but oh, i really like oh. the idea that they're like squeezing the butter and it just like comes out like a bar of soap or there was a butter delivery service right and the delivery boy would just get paid up front. So it's like, I can't, you know, like sort of like the ones that now sort of deliver newspapers. I can't be bothered to deliver all of these. I'll just pop them in the box. What, what would be called like b- bogger boo? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I've lost your butter on transit. I was going past this box. <laughs> I slipped on the bog butter that was already there. <laughs> okay. Okay, so, well, this is a, a fascinating theory, a fascinating theory for why bog butter exists. This is archaeology in practice, guys. I mean, we've done a good science here. I mean, that's the thing, though, is that there, we actually don't really know why bog butter exists. So, you know what? It's fair game. I mean, for, for normal people, the, their normal theories for bog butter includes the fact that it was used as storage for enhancing the flavor <laughs> or right. and this is what i i like to think about ritual reasons i like to imagine that we like worshiped squirrels in the past and we saw them burying nuts in the ground we we're like <laughs> the squirrels have something here i think they're on something <laughs> so yeah bogs as funny as they are they actually are kind of really useful for storage, even though it is funny to think about people just losing their butters in the bog. So with storage, bogs are basically just natural fridges based on the way they're chemically composed. The environment that the chemical composition of bogs creates is very cool and anaerobic and high acidity. So you could basically put some butter there and it would be okay and also butter was actually quite valuable so you would you'd want to keep them safe in a in a bog <laughs> so that the bog boy doesn't steal your butter bog keep, it secret. keep it safe <laughs> it's the goblin of the bog the boglin <laughs> I want to I want to reiterate that the, the the theories I'm talking about come from academic texts. I didn't make these up. Boglin. <laughs> oh god. So so they're actually speaking of texts. There are actually historical texts that suggest that bog butter was traditionally known for being better tasting than fresh butter. I meant to write butter, but I wrote bog. <laughs> so bog was really on the mind <laughs> it's starting to look like not a word but yeah i guess it must have boggled the mind <laughs> oh go away oh we're getting bogged down come on no <laughs> oh. oh god <laughs> save us alex <laughs> i can't believe i have to save this podcast that's how you know how bad it's gotten but yeah, there's like actual folklore and text saying that put it, putting butter in a bog makes it taste much better than fresh butter. But anyway, ritual, as much as we like to say, everyone says ritual for everything. It, it actually kind of makes sense because bogs are traditionally, or at least apparently, ritual hotspots. Like we said, bog bodies exist, which may or may not have been kind of ritual depositions. It's kind of dependent on 
what you're talking about, as there's lots of places with bogs. And there's also weapon deposition that's found in bogs very commonly. So, you know, bog butters may have been used ritually to ask for protection of livestock and for dairy production. And if Tristan's right, may have also been a kind of appeasement to the, the squirrel gods. Who knows? So, of course, I looked up what bog butter tastes like because I was like, someone's had to have eaten one, right? Like, some, like I would have done it. If I was the archaeologist who found the bog butter, I would have absolutely eaten it and then I would have died. And it would have been worth it. It's fine. Uh, so there have been some pe- cases of people allegedly trying bog butter, although I think it's more likely people who have attempted to make their own bog butter. <laughs> so not as old. So some words, some choice words I've seen have been funky, putrid, pungent, (laughs) and my favorite is Parmesan-like. Disclaimer, please do not eat the archaeology. So kind of going back to another thing that Simona mentioned before, what animals were these butters made of? So DNA identification of species has been (laughs) unsurprisingly very difficult and only kind of recently been accomplished with sheep and goat and cattle being identified among various samples. But there's also some samples where sheep and goat milk were potentially blended together to make butter. So on one hand, if we're thinking about it on a ritual perspective, that kind of makes sense. You want protection for all your animals. You'll put all of their milk products into one thing. But it could have also been attempts by smaller farms to, you know, utilize all the resources they had into making butter, which was so valuable. And there, we have finished the bog butter. Is everyone okay now? Have we all settled down? I think so. It's okay. I won't continue this. I think we've milked it enough. I will turn this podcast around if we won't all behave. When did I become the voice of reason? You're not my real mom. Forgive me for making this podcast more cheesy than it already is. Boo! (laughs) Boo the man. Bog. I hope everyone who's listening to this podcast is out out loud booing the man for ruining my podcast. Cheese. We're going to cheese. <laughs> yes, uh, we will move uh, swiftly and literally swiftly because most of our time has been taken up by the squirrel guards and the, the bog boy delivering butter. Right, our second case, case study is about cheese making in Neolithic Europe. Now, cheese is not only very important to late night snackers such as Alex and myself, but was also an important innovation to preserve and transport milk, as well as make it more digestible. That is, if the the delivery boy doesn't drop drop it all into a bog. Now, perforated pottery identified as linear pottery from Central Europe has been potentially identified as cheese strainers. Again, the cheese pots that we discussed in the... The earlier segment of this episode, where you have these ceramic vessels, which are holes in the bottom. It's a colander. This is correlated with the fact that the linear pottery culture occurs during early domestication, a nearby archaeological context with milk-bearing animal remains. This theory has, however, been pushed back somewhat due to the lack of evidence for specifically milk on the pottery, sort of through sort of lipid analysis and some of the other processes, which, again, we discussed in a previous segment, as perforated pottery and sieves can also be used for a variety of non-milk products as well. Alex mentioned honey and beeswax, but also beer. They could also be used as flame covers. So, you know, 
no lipid analysis, no party in a way. Researchers were, however, able to identify dairy fat residues on linear pottery, providing evidence that some pottery was used to process milk between 5200 and 4800 BCE. Because of the presence of this perforated pottery, it was determined that this was likely used for cheese making rather than any other form of dairy processing. What was interesting about it is that the residue analysis was also able to differentiate certain pieces of pottery from others with regards to potential uses for cooking and straining. So, for example, you know, some pots had evidence of it being heated to higher temperatures, hence used for cooking, while some flasks had evidence of beeswax, which would have likely been flaked for honey storage. Though, incidentally, the beeswax may have also been used to waterproof some of the sieves, so the plot thickens somewhat. On the overall, the swiftest case study in the history of archaeoanimals <laughs> is a very good illustration of having multiple sources that you can use as evidence for daring on a particular sort of site or time period. Also, cheese is great, even if it may or may not kill Alex. Cheese is amazing, and I, I wish I could spend more time on cheese, but unfortunately the bog boy has taken most of our time. What about bog cheese? I mean, I was thinking about that. I mean... Bog parmesan. Well, it kind of already exists. The butter apparently tastes like that. I should also point out that the, the, the report that I read, it was like a news article about the person who said it tasted like Parmesan. The person was like, it tastes like Parmesan. And then the, the, the person that was interviewing him was like, oh, so like, you know, like in a good way. And the guy was like, well, you know, the enzyme to, that makes that Parmesan taste is also like the one that's found in vomit. So, oh, I think that that really sums up the, the dichotomy of bog butter. So that's cool. Anyway. The most important thing I want to impress upon the listeners is that bog butter is a weirdly common occurrence. So if you know have a bog nearby, why don't you go take a, a big net as, as, and, you know, fish around? There's probably like a decent chance you might find some butter. And I can't say what to do with it afterwards, but, you know, just saying it's in your hands then. I'm not liable for what happens afterwards. <laughs> but let us know what it may or may not taste like. And you can do that because we are on Twitter at ArcheoAnimals. We are also, obviously, on the Archaeology Podcast Network website. And wherever you get your podcasts, where you can like, subscribe, follow us. You can leave us a nice review saying that you would love for us to never speak about bog butter again. Or oh, an all bog butter episode. Oh, no. I mean... <laughs> I don't know if you want to make an, a completely unlistable episode, but... No, I, we have to make the bog cast. Like a whole <laughs> podcast about bogs. <laughs> oh, God, I can hear it now. Today's episode on bog cast. <laughs> anyway, this has been Alex Fitzpatrick. Simona Falanga. The only adult and in the room. Mr. Bog Boy. Oh, gosh. <laughs> don't even bother tuning in next time. Thank you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. Ooh, 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 ooh.
This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Laura Johnson. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.